If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. As I'm sure you already know, this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, and we're pleased to bring you a very special offer. Subscribe to BBC History magazine today, and you can choose a book worth up to £30. Choose from either Queens of the Crusades by Alison Weir, The Children of Ashen Elm by Neil Price, Agent Sonia by Ben McIntyre, or The Story of China by Michael Wood. Not only that, you'll also get every issue of BBC History magazine delivered direct to your door, all from just £22.45. To take advantage of this fantastic offer, visit our official online store at buysubscriptions.com forward slash history book. This promotion is only available for UK residents and while stocks last. You'll receive your book within 28 days of ordering. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. In today's episode, you'll be hearing from Trevor Barnes, a writer and historian of espionage whose latest book, Dead Doubles, explores a fascinating counter-espionage investigation by MI5 to uncover the infamous Portland spy ring, one of the most dangerous KGB espionage rings ever to operate in the UK. The revelation of these deep-cover Russian agents shocked the West in the early 1960s, and it's an operation that continues to resonate today. Putting the questions to Trevor was our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans. So your book, Dead Doubles, explores the remarkable counter-espionage operation by MI5 that uncovered the Portland spy ring in the very early 1960s. Uh, and it's obviously a very famous espionage case of the Cold War, particularly at the time. Um, but for listeners who might not be, be as familiar with this case, could you give us uh, an introduction and how you came to write about it? Well, I came to write about it because having changed careers a few times, I wanted to start writing non-fiction. I had written and published three thriller police procedurals with a female detective and I'd always been interested in spying as a history issue. I studied it when I was at university and had a fortunately a couple of articles published. And then I came across this remarkable story of the Portland spy ring. And I also discovered that MI5 were starting to release their incredible files, which chronicled the whole story of the Portland spy ring. MI5 is, of course, the domestic intelligence service of Britain, so it's charged with spotting foreign spies trying to penetrate the UK, but also counter-subversion. And at least 50 years pass after a case has happened before they start releasing their files. MI5 has a remarkable uh, small group of people in their history team, and they are always going through the files that they've kept and deciding which ones they can release and which days they can't on a kind of cycle. And it's a quite a complicated process because they obviously want to check that there's nothing in those files which is going to cause problems for national security now. They have to liaise with all the foreign intelligence services they've dealt with 
And another remarkable feature of this case is its incredible international reach. It really does span round the globe from New Zealand to America to Canada to Europe and, of course, Russia. So that was how I came to start to research this book and start to write it. And I found it a fascinating process. Yes, no, it's a, a really fascinating process. And and can you um, maybe introduce us in the way your book does to to this world of counter-espionage, to the way that um, MI5 um, came, came into this spy ring and then the kind of tactics that they were using? I think listeners to the podcast need, first of all, to cast themselves back to the period. I mean, all of this happened 60 years ago, and it seems like a, a different country, but it wasn't. It was a, the same country, but things have just changed so much. Britain was coming out of the period of real austerity in the 1950s after World War II. Rationing had only been abolished in 1955. But at the same time, Britain was a, a period of change. Uh, the first motorway had just opened a couple of years before. Uh, the building boom in the NHS was only about to happen. I mean, a lot of people forget that not a single new hospital was built between 1948 and 1962. And the international background was, of course, the Cold War. The permafrost that there was that between the two great blocks of the USSR, the Soviet Union, and America, NATO and their allies, including Britain. And what happened during the Cold War, fortunately, was that there wasn't any hot war. With the exception of the Korean War at the beginning of the 50s, these big blocks were at loggerheads with each other, and each were trying to find out secrets about what was going on in their society, particularly the West trying to find out what's going on in the Soviet Union, but the Soviet Union also in the West. And this meant that there was a great interest on the part of the Soviet Union in penetrating and getting material out of Britain, and in particular our Navy. And another historical fact, interesting one, was back in 1960, Britain's Navy was the third largest in the world still. It's much, much reduced now. And also we had world-beating technology in terms of sonar and in terms of research. And again, our technological industrial base is much eroded now. But back in 1960, and Britain at the time was building our first nuclear submarine, we had developed a revolutionary world-beating sonar. And the KGB and the Russians wanted the secrets of that to save them years and years of research. And that was in particular why the Russians were targeting the underwater detection establishment down at Weymouth uh, or near Weymouth on the Isle of Portland uh, on the Dorset coast. And that's why it became the Portland spy ring. How did this ring that was operating in this area first come to the attention of MI5? It first came to the attention of MI5 at the very beginning of 1960. And again, there's a contemporary resonance here because there was a man working down there who received an anti-Semitic letter. There was a swastika, the word Jew. And we know that there's been this very, very sad and unfortunate rise in anti-Semitic activity in, in Europe and other places recently. So it really does chime with a lot of contemporary concerns. And this man, having received it, was understandably very distressed and reported it to the Admiralty police down there. But MI5 weren't interested in the anti-Semitism. What was interesting for them was that the man who received this letter said, I think this letter came from a man working here down at Portland called Harry Houghton. And I know back in 1956, he was reported and investigated for taking secret files without permission. 
So it was that that came to the attention of MI5 in London. MI5's headquarters was at Leckenfield House, which is in Curzon Street in Mayfair then. And you can visit it still today. It's now an office block. And so the report came into MI5, but it wasn't at the time of great urgency and importance because there was nothing solid in this information. It was simply a, a general report that could be of interest. But when MI5, in fact, investigated this man, Harry Halton, and the files came up from the registry of MI5 down in the bowels of Leckenfield House, it emerged that, in fact, MI5 had been asked about him four years before. And this was when the man, Harry Houghton's wife, had reported that she thought her husband was passing secrets to certain foreigners. And as a result of that, the Admiralty Police had uh, asked uh, MI5, was there a file on Houghton? But when the Admiralty wrote to London, they said, we think that these allegations don't really have any substance. They're just the allegations of a scorned wife. Because it turned out that Harry Houghton had been starting an affair with a woman also working at the base whose name was Ethel G. And she, it turned out later, was the second member of the Portland spy ring. And MI5, unfortunately, had decided to agree with that rather sexist comment that was sent up from Portland. And so Harry Houghton was not followed up further at the time, and he certainly wasn't arrested. Mm. Yeah, this this theme of misogyny that kind of um, is is ever present in your account due to the time that you're writing about that we're talking about it is a really interesting one. Um, and perhaps we can talk about that how that um, manifested also in MI5's operation as well a bit later on. Um, but I wanted to just uh, talk a bit more about MI5's operations at this time and the notion of illegals. Can we define that term? This was part of a broader symptom of the Cold War, wasn't it? That, that there might have been illegals operating in, in Britain. The, the Russian intelligence service has always, since the Russian Revolution in 1917, had two types of spies. Type one are what are called the legal spies. And these are the ones who are based in the Russian embassies all around the world. And they are very good at their job. They obviously go off and meet people, collect intelligence. But of course, it's quite easy for them to be on the radar screen of the host country because as diplomats, they have to report their arrival and leave leaving from the country. And of course, their benefit is that they have diplomatic status. So if and when they're found out, they can just claim diplomatic immunity and the worst that can happen to them is they're thrown out. But the real jewel in the crown for a number of intelligence services are what are called illegals. And this is what the Russians have specialised in since the revolution. And this is where you create a legend, you create a deep cover for a person to become somebody else. And they infiltrate into another society pretending to be somebody else. They're given a fake passport a whole fake lifestyle which they have to learn and they have to live. And their advantage is they're not on the radar screen of the host country. So the theory is it's much easier for them to meet people in secret, collect and pass on intelligence than would otherwise be the case. And it was the heart of the Portland spy ring that was illegal spies based in Russia, as we'll find out in a moment. Right. So we've got MI5 that is um, running counter-espionage counter operation. They're perhaps aware that there's a breach and they've got their eyes on, on Harry Houghton. What, what happens next? How do they go about um, 
attaching him to, to other figures? Well, at this time, as you can imagine, 1960, this was very much analog surveillance in an analog age. This wasn't the time of CCTV cameras and complicated, tricky, advanced technology in terms of surveillance. MI5 started by doing the basics. First of all, they placed a tap on Harry Houghton's phone, on his cottage just outside Weymouth. They also started to intercept his mail. And in these uh, ancient days, MI5 had a series of little post office-based interception points where they would have people with rubber gloves and they would steam open letters and close them up again in order to take out the contents and copy them. And it was that sort of level of surveillance backed up by a team of what were known as the Watchers. In the John the Carey books, they're talked about as the lamplighters. Their real name was the Watchers. And these were a series of men and, quite recently in 1960, women who were allowed to become Watchers. They had a fleet of cars based in South London and they had analogue radio connections, just like in the old days of radio cars and taxis. And they would communicate as they followed people they thought were Russian agents around London or the UK. And there were some quite complicated surveillance operations that they had to carry out. And so they started to uh, put these surveillance operations into play with regard to Harry Houghton. But the other interesting feature of the case was that MI5 also relied on the regional police forces to help them. Always there's been since the time in the 19th century when there was Irish republicanism and the Fenian movement and the special branch was set up in the Metropolitan Police. There were these regional police groups called special branches all around the country who would collect and bring in information for MI5 and that happened in this case as well. So down in the southwest of England in Dorset, the Dorset Constabulary had a handful of special branch officers, and they also collected evidence by following Harry Houghton around. There was a detective constable called Leonard Burt, and he played a key role in collecting information as well. Also, MI5 recruited a neighbour of Harry Houghton. He was a special constable called Cyril Bogust. His cottage overlooked Harry Houghton, and this neighbour spied on Harry Houghton, his neighbour just across the garden. So if that's um, great, you know, great evidence of, of the a activity at a, a local level, as you mentioned at the very start, this was also, this is also a very international case. And you found um, a collaboration between MI5 and the FBI. What can you say about the informants and the information they got from that collaboration? Well, the FBI came into play a little bit later in the case, but the CIA also had a major role. And that really forced the investigation from ambling along quite slowly with all the surveillance, with the watchers, interception of uh, mail, telephone bugs, onto kind of light speed. And this is because the CIA had an agent somewhere in Eastern Europe codenamed Sniper. And at the end of April 1960, this agent passed crucial information to the CIA, which then went to MI5. And this said, there is a spy in the British Admiralty somewhere. This person, whose name begins with an H, was recruited in Warsaw in 1951, when this person was working as a, an attaché in the naval attaché's office, then came back to the UK, taken over by the KGB, and is actively spying now. This information was passed to MI5. The only person who could fit the description 
and the only prime suspect was Harry Houghton. So at that moment, MI5 started to collect even more information about Harry Houghton and on, also on his girlfriend, Ethel G, who worked with him at the base. And it was the surveillance of them being followed by the watchers up to London at the start of July 1960 that alerted MI5 to the next spy in the case because Harry Houghton and G came up to London. They stayed in the Cumberland Hotel pretending to be husband and wife. Bit of a scandal at the time, back in 1960, if that had been known. And they were seen to go to the Old Vic Theatre and meet there a mysterious, unidentified man. And from the number plate of this man, MI5 discovered that he was going under the name of Gordon Lonsdale. So that's the third spy who's now come into the ring. Okay, so um, Lonsdale and Houghton and Angie are involved in these these um, clandestine or meetings that are on MI5's radar. Um, and can you say a little bit about about the evidence of what these agents who the watchers were uncovering and how close they were able to get? I think that was a really striking instance of your book. Well, the watchers, fortunately, by 1960, started to have some women working amongst them. There was considerable opposition. I mean, again, you look back and it's incredible to women working as watchers because um, very often you'd be sitting in a car for a long time just chatting because uh, the person in charge of the watchers was afraid that these women would um, tempt the men away from their work and they might start affairs, spending all this time together. But of course, I mean, that was just a stupid uh, objection. And women started to join the group. And of course, they were crucial because you have people outside a house for a long period and you only ever see men there. I mean, it's obviously going to attract far more attention. And what happened was that the, the watchers, as I said, followed Houghton and G up to London. And they, first of all, followed them up once. They identified them meeting this man, Gordon Lonsdale. But when Houghton and G came up on the second occasion in August, Houghton went into a local cafe near Waterloo Station. And the watchers had a really crucial decision to make, take a big risk. Did they follow them in and risk being spotted, um, but follow them in with the great advantage of potentially collecting really crucial intelligence or not? They decided to take the plunge. So they went into this old-style cafe. You know, you had steamed-up windows, lino on the floor. You can imagine a big chrome vat for the tea and the steam. And they sat down next to... Houghton and to Lonsdale and in the report that one of the watchers wrote he said because his back was against the bench which was actually against Harry Houghton he could feel Harry Houghton going backwards and forwards in the bench and it also meant however he could overhear snatches of conversation and he overheard Houghton say I've got quote plenty in my attaché case for you tonight. Oh, said Lonsdale, lots of work for me then. And they also talked about the future meetings they were going to have on the first Saturday of each month in the coming few months. And they also talked about a very famous defection that just took place at that time of two Americans to Russia of code-breaking American agents. So this is really crucial and useful information collected by these watchers. Right. And, and alongside the watchers, um, at the risk of skipping us ahead a little bit, I mean, I mean, your book opens with, with this um, this episode that there's a suitcase that um, MI5 somehow get hold of. And the way they do this is rather remarkable. Can we talk a bit about that? Absolutely. 
What happened having identified Lonsdale uh, as a potential Russian illegal spy, MI5 started to collect information from him. They contacted the Canadians because Lonsdale was going around pretending he was a seller of jukeboxes and gum machines. And the information came back from the Canadians and it was rather intriguing because there was a great gap in the life of this man called Lonsdale. He was born in Ontario um, in 1924 and he then disappeared as a child and then he re-emerges in Britain in 1955. So he's put under surveillance he was followed around and at the end of August he was followed to a bank in Fitzrovia in Great Portland Street in London, number 159 Great Portland Street. It's now Starbucks if you go there, no longer a bank. And he was seen to go into the bank on this Friday afternoon with three packages, but he came out with nothing. And so MI5 immediately thought, oh my goodness me, what's happening here? So they contacted the bank who said, yes, safety deposit box had been opened and these objects put in there. But then, immediately after that visit to the bank, Lonsdale vanished. He just disappeared completely. MI5 had no idea where he'd gone, other than through a bugged telephone call with the office where Lonsdale had worked in Wardour Street in Soho, uh, where it turned out that Lonsdale said, oh, I'm going to Canada for six weeks. But there was no evidence of him leaving the UK, certainly no evidence of him arriving in Canada. So MI5 were on a bit of a knife edge. On the one hand, they were thinking, here's a real opportunity. We might be able to go into that safety deposit box. On the other hand, um, will he come back at all? Perhaps he'll be alerted. But they decided in the end they'd take the risk. So they contacted the bank and the bank said, look, we're not going to help you unless you've got special permission right from the top of the bank. So MI5 went to the permanent secretary, the top civil servant in the Treasury, and he approached the chairman of the Midland Bank, no less. And the Midland Bank chairman said, yeah, you can go in, but I want a full indemnity. If there are any legal consequences or problems, I want MI5 to cover the Midland Bank. So MI said, yeah, OK. They went in on a Friday afternoon and they took the deposit uh, box materials, which were three, to their top secret laboratory near St Paul's Cathedral. You can imagine the scene, trestle tables laid out, bright lights, cameras, because it was important when they unpacked what was in those cases to be able to return them in exactly the same way. So when Lonsdale came back, he didn't have a clue as to what had happened. And so that's what they did. And at the beginning, they couldn't really find anything that was definitive in terms of evidence against him. They found some photographs. They found materials about his jukebox business. But interestingly, and most importantly, they found the chief MI5 investigator, a cigarette lighter. It was an old style wooden one. Um, the sort of thing that you put on a, a coffee, coffee table or something. And in the middle, at the top, you had the actual lighter. And the MI5 investigator in charge said, well, why on earth would this man leave this cigarette lighter in a safety deposit box? Something fishy here. So he asked for it to be put under an X-ray machine and it showed a shadow. It was hollow. So they then opened it up and discovered there was a hidden cavity inside, engineered, as it turned out, by the KGB. And inside there were KGB issue encoding little pads, like little stickies that you 
put on the side of documents and things with all the encoded numbers, but also a plan of eight roads down in Kingston in southwest London where clearly the spies would meet. So there was a ka-ching moment within MI5 because they knew that Lonsdale was definitely a KGB illegal spy. And that was a turning point in the investigation. Yes, I I love this detail of of the lighter containing this this secret. It's really truth stranger than fiction, isn't it? So we've got Houghton, we've got uh, Guy uh, liaising with, with a man known as Lonsdale. How do the other two spies of this ring come into it? Well, Lonsdale has disappeared from the country. MI5 are increasingly on tenterhooks. But then in the middle of October, he comes back. He just appears in his office in Wardour Street in Soho. And so, of course, there's a great collective sense of relief. But MI5 think we must carry on following Lonsdale because they might be other spies in the ring. And Lonsdale, he's rented a flat very near Regent's Park in a house... Uh, he rented a flat in a massive great building near Regent's Park called then the White House. And you can visit it today. It's actually a massive hotel uh, run by the Malia chain. It's exactly the same. You've got this massive great building. But he kept, even though he'd rented an apartment there, disappearing every night. And he kept going out towards the northwest of London. MI5 was scared stiff that Lonsdale would sniff out that he was being followed. And so they put a series of surveillance teams to follow him who would take him just so far out to the northwest and then they'd disappear. And it was a massive operation. They had to call in lots of extra people to help them. But in the end, at the end of October, they tracked him all the way out to Ryslip. And one night, Lonsdale walked from Ryslip Manor Tube and he went towards a close called Cranley Drive and he walked through a little passageway and the watchers were scared stiff of following him because the passageway was only wide enough to allow two people to go through and they were scared stiff that he, Lonsdale, would be waiting as a trained Russian illegal just round the corner to spot them coming through. So they said, right, we know where he's gone. We've now got to find out where he actually goes, which building he goes to. So what they did was then set up an observation post in the house opposite. And they went to uh, number one, Courtfield Gardens, to a couple called the Searchers. And they very kindly agreed to allow their daughter's bedroom. Their daughter, age 14, was called Gay, and her bedroom was taken over by MI5. And so two women agents from MI5 would come each day on their again, quite daring at the time, on their Vespa motor scooters, they would park round the corner and they would go in and as part of a tandem team, they'd keep watch. And then a few days later, on a Sunday afternoon, through the bay window, one of the MI5 agents saw coming out of the front door of the bungalow opposite Gordon Lonsdale. He had been to 45 Cranley Drive, and this was lived in by a couple whose name was Helen and Peter Kroger. He was pretending to be an antiquarian bookseller and his wife a housewife, and they were going round the area saying they were Canadian. And so they were the final two spies in the Portland spy ring, as it turned out, and they again were put under intense surveillance by MI5. And they had the nickname, uh, well, the code name, sorry, the the Killjoys. 
yeah, they were called the the Killjoys. Uh, all the other people in the ring were given code names by MI5 as well. So Harry Houghton was Reverberate, Ethel G was Trellis, and Lonsdale was called Last Act. I think because he'd first of all been seen outside the old Vic. So indeed, that was the code name that was given to the Krogers. I think the MI5 investigator uh, took against them a bit because he discovered that they were, in the longer term, very, very deep ideological communist agents. And in his view, they were rather lacking in humour, which I think was why they were given the name Killjoys. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. But then there was a dramatic development as the year turned into 1961. And that development was that Sniper told CIA in Berlin... I am going to defect, I must defect in the next 24 hours because Sniper was concerned that his cover might have been blown. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I mean, that's a that's a great note to talk about their motivations, uh, really. So what did you find out about, you just mentioned that the Krogers, it's ideological. What what about Lonsdale and, and Houghton and G? How, how, how were they motivated? The spies had various motivations. And of course, this only really emerged in the longer term after their arrest and trial at the beginning of 1961. You found ultimately that Houghton and G were motivated by money, by greed. Harry Houghton had been recruited by the KGB in 1951 when he was based out in Warsaw. He always, through the whole of his life, I think, had a big chip on his shoulder about the way he was treated compared with other people. There's no evidence that he was ideologically committed in any way. And it was the same for G. Uh, What's interesting from the KGB archives on the case because the KGB did release certain documents about Houghton and G in the 1990s, was that Houghton had offered his services himself directly to the KGB back in Warsaw, and that he had recruited G at the end of the 1950s to take documents out of Portland. But G knew exactly what she was doing. She was not an innocent pawn, and she was also doing it for money. Now, the other three spies, so Lonsdale first, he was this deep cover, highly trained KGB illegal. His life, uh, when it was finally untangled, because his identity was only known uh, after the trial and he'd been prosecuted and sentenced to jail, and MI5 went through a very, very elaborate and complicated and interesting international hunt with help from the FBI and the Canadians to track down his real identity. He had gone in the 1930s to California and lived there with his aunt because his family was so poor back in Moscow and starving that his mother wanted to give him another chance in life. And so he went and lived in California, which was how he learned 
completely fluent English. But then at the end of the 1930s, he was given a choice by his mum, either come back to Russia or stay in the flesh pots of the West. And he was very patriotic as a Russian, and so he decided to go back to the Soviet Union. He fought in the Great Patriotic War, and that was when he was recruited by the KGB. So his motivation was patriotism and devotion to the Soviet Union. And he actually got immense amount of respect from the MI5 people who were investigating him, who saw him as a real professional. Then you've got the final two spies, Helen and Peter Kroger were their cover names. Their real names were Morris and Lona Cohen, and they were long-term ideologically committed communist spies for the Soviet Union. They'd been recruited in Morris's case during the Spanish Civil War, and then he spied for the KGB when he was back in America in the early 40s. His wife, Lona Cohen, joined him as a KGB spy when they got married in 1941. She again did work for the KGB during the war, most importantly and interestingly smuggling secrets out of the Los Alamos atomic a bomb research centre, uh, the Manhattan Project down in New Mexico at the end of the war, 1945. Then they basically were exfiltrated out of America in 1950 when the FBI were rounding up so many of these atom spies. Then they went back to Moscow. They were then trained again as, as, as illegals and they joined Gordon Lonsdale in this operation for Portland in the UK in the late 50s. So they, if you like, had a second life as illegals. They were recycled. Brilliant stuff. So if, if we we can talk then about the, the, the MI5 have got this evidence from their watchers. What's the catalyst for them making an arrest or making a move on, on, the, on, these, on this ring? Well, by the end of 1960, MI5 knew that there were five spies in this ring. There's no evidence at this time that there were any others. All of them were being carefully tracked. Phones were being bugged. And at the time, MI5 wanted to let this operation run because they wished to see if there were any other spies in the ring. So they were thinking about probably arresting these five spies in the spring or even early summer of 1961. But then there was a dramatic development as the year turned into 1961. And that development was that Sniper told CIA in Berlin, I am going to defect, I must defect in the next 24 hours because Sniper was concerned that his cover might have been blown. So he, in the classic Cold War way, came to the CIA, um, to the American consulate actually in Berlin on the 4th of January 1961. And this set off alarm bells in MI5 because of course they knew that if this agent defected and it got back, as it would do almost immediately to the KGB, there would be this instantaneous investigation going back over all snipers' connections, what information, what intelligence he had. And this would mean that they would probably withdraw, KGB would withdraw immediately, a lot of their undercover agents from Europe, including probably these three KGB illegals, the Krogers and Lonsdale. So it's crucial to wrap up and catch that ring as soon as possible. Fortunately for them, it turned out that Houghton and G were planning to come up to London on the Saturday after the defection during the week. So obviously the MI5 team worked like crazy. 
long hours to prepare a very, very elaborate plan. And this was put into operation on the 7th of January 1961. Houghton and G were followed all the way up from Weymouth to London to Waterloo Station. And they then went over to the old Vic Theatre. There was a bit of an alarm and excursion when they went off to a market for a moment and the watchers panicked. But back at the old Vic, they met Gordon Lonsdale. Lonsdale joined them and he slipped between the two, Harry Houghton and G, as they were walking along, took a shopping basket from G's hand, and at that moment, MI5 swooped. And in that shopping basket of G were confidential documents and information from Portland. So once they were arrested, MI5 knew that they would need to arrest the Krogers the same day. So they made plans to go out to the bungalow in Ryslip that evening and arrive at the time when Lonsdale would normally have appeared with his latest clutch and tranche of secrets. And that's what they did at seven o'clock in the evening. Special branch, remember that's the police front for MI5 because officially MI5 didn't exist at the time. So any police work, arrests, trial work, collecting evidence, was done by the special branch of the Metropolitan Police. They knocked on the front door of 45 Cranley Drive. It was answered by Peter Kroger. The police said that they were looking into some burglaries in the area. And to cut a very long story short, Helen Kroger said, oh, I want to go and stoke up the boiler. And she went and picked up her handbag on the way to do that. She was stopped by the police. They opened up her handbag and inside were more KGB secrets. There were some glass slides with micro dots inside. This is miniature, tiny, microscopic photographs of documents. So you reduce a document down to a pinprick. And also there was a, a manuscript letter in Russian that turned out to have been written by Lonsdale for his wife and other materials. So they were also caught and they were taken to the police station. Remarkable stuff. Very dramatic against the clock um, arrest there moving in. It's, it's really remarkable stuff. When MI5 brought in these five spies, they were um, unsure still if there were any other spies in this ring. W what did you find out about um, the, any evidence of any other spies that were operating at the same time? Well, at the time, there were no other spies that were found. The only evidence really was that in the days following the arrests, Britain's code-breaking agency, GCHQ, down in Cheltenham, intercepted a number of messages coming into Britain from Moscow, the Moscow area, into Britain using the code pads that the Krogers and Lonsdale had also used. And then after about a week or 10 days, those messages stopped. So that was provided some sort of evidence there might have been other spies in the ring, but there was nothing solid at all. And the five spies themselves were not seen to meet anyone else. And interestingly, when GCHQ intercepted the radio messages, which he sent from his flat in the apartment block near Regent's Park to Moscow, and he received messages. The references that there were to other spies, other than Lonsdale, were only to two. They were to the agent codenamed Asya and agent codenamed Shah, which were the codenames for G and Houghton. It was only after the uh, 
whole trial in March 61 and years later and, and going through all the Russian sources that I think it's pretty clear that there were a number of other agents in the ring. Certainly, I think there's very, very good evidence that the Russians, through the Portland spy ring, penetrated Porton Down, which is the famous chemical and biological research centre at Salisbury in Britain, and that the Russians did have an agent there who provided information about, for example, the CS gas that was developed used to control crowds, which was developed first by Britain, but also, and perhaps more interestingly with a contemporary resonance, the first synthetic nerve agent ever developed anywhere in the world using the VX system. It's incredibly powerful. And this emerged from research into fertilisers and into insecticides. And this was called VX. And this was, in fact, the ancestor of Novichok, which was used uh, by the Russians, uh, persons unknown, although there are suggestions that we now know their identity, uh, for the poisoning attack on Yuri Skripal and his daughter in Salisbury, and most recently the attack on the Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. In addition, there was another agent who we actually know as a matter of fact was for a very short while in the ring, a woman called Melita Norwood. She was a long-term Russian spy providing industrial secrets, but she was controlled only for six weeks by Gordon Lonsdale because she thought he was too much of a playboy and she insisted that she was passed back to the Russian embassy. But the Russian sources also talk about there being other agents in the ring. Uh, there was one, for example, allegedly called Agent K, who provided important information about industrial processes and about the materials that were used to build Britain's first nuclear submarine dreadnought. There were other agents who were meant to be former MI5 people who provided political intelligence. And so there clearly were other spies in this ring, and the Russian sources talk about a number of them being withdrawn and being compromised from the UK as a result of the ring being arrested. But so far, it's impossible to identify any of them, and it's also very difficult to assess really just how important those other spies were. They clearly had an importance, but uh, they weren't, for example, I think it's important to say Kim Philby, uh, Burgess and McLean and other spies in the uh, Cambridge uh, network, which the Russians call the Magnificent Five. Yeah, a uh, fascinating and, and quite chilling stuff as well. Imagining what what else what else has gone on, what's gone on. Um, you, you mentioned the uh, news connection that people might well be making with you know events in Salisbury and elsewhere. Uh, and I'm interested also about the the contemporary uh, news. How was this case received with with the sudden knowledge that there had been these deep cover illegals living in Ryslip or Weymouth? When the trial took place, the criminal trial of the five spies in March 1961, it made headlines all around the world. There was only one news agency, prominent news agency, that wasn't represented, and that was, surprise, surprise, from Russia. The TASS news agency wasn't there. But headlines around the world were made by the revelations about Russian illegals and about the spy ring and the secrets that were compromised. And so it really was very, very important at the time. And the five spies were 
found guilty. The jury only took 45 minutes to decide that they should be uh, obviously sentenced for espionage charges. And the judge was pretty unforgiving. The Lord Chief Justice presided over this trial, and that in itself showed how important it was. And he gave Gordon Lonsdale 25 years in jail, which was an unprecedented length of time. And there were gasps from the court when that was announced. He was obviously expecting, you know, and so with a lot of the correspondence from the newspapers, more like 10 years or something of that nature. The Krogers were each given 20. Again, that was incredibly uh, strong sentence uh, at the time. And the two British spies, Houghton and G, were each given 10 years. And they were then sent to various jails in the UK. And then the cat and mouse game started with MI5 trying to persuade the spies to divulge secrets in exchange for a reduction in their sentences. And see, even in the case of Lonsdale, if you might even consider defecting or even possibly going back to Russia as a double agent working for the British. And all of this material is recorded, this fascinating stuff in the MI5 files in the National Archives at Kew. Okay, so today, is it is it possible then with that knowledge to put into context or understand the, the damage that was, was done by the intelligence that these five managed to to leak, uh, or you know, is that is that beyond understanding, or can we kind of quantify that that intelligence or the, that impact? It's very difficult always to come up with an accurate damage assessment of a spy ring, unless the spies concerned have confessed and said exactly what they've done. But in this case, by pulling together all the bits of information from Russian sources and from talking, for example, to two former British nuclear submarine commanders, it's been possible in the book to assess pretty accurately the damage that was done from the information that we know. Certainly the biggest secret, the most important one that was passed to the Russians was of Britain's world-beating revolutionary sonar in the first British nuclear submarine dreadnought. It was called 2001, and that secret was passed to the Russians and clearly saved them hundreds of thousands, if not potentially even billions of uh, pounds in terms of research money. Then we've got the material that was also uh, divulged from Portland that we don't know about um, definitively because it's known from Russian sources that over the period of his spying, about 10 years, Powton and G together passed an industrial quantity of documents to the Russians. So it's undoubtedly the case that other torpedo secrets, other sonar secrets, um, and information about, for example, underwater cable espionage techniques, you have these sonar things under the water, were also passed to the Russians. Then we've got the secrets from Porton Down about CS gas, nerve agents, and so on and so forth. So Overall, it was a very important spy ring and gave really useful information to the Russians. But compared with, for example, the very famous Walker spy ring, which passed naval secrets from America to the Russians in the 1980s, and that lasted for about 18 years altogether, it's clear from CIA sources that that was even more damaging than the Portland spy ring. But the other interesting point, I think, today in 2020 is, is looking at the 
importance today of what the Portland Spiring did, the lessons that we can learn from it in terms of, for example, the significance of international cooperation. If you are going to find illegals, identify them and follow them all through, but also the crucial importance of defectors and other people who can give you human intelligence. It's very important in this case to remember that the crucial clue for MI5 came in from the CIA agent called Sniper. It was he who really put Western intelligence on the track of the Portland spy ring. And similarly, only a decade ago in America, the FBI were only put onto this very large network of uh, undercover spies operating there by a spy that they had in the KGB, whose name was Potoyev. And he basically gave details of this spy network run by the KGB undercover, and it was through him that the FBI were able to round them up in 2010. I know you talked about um, Lonsdale a bit in the motive when I asked about the motivations, but I'd really like to perhaps go back to this revelation of Lonsdale's true identity because he really has become um, a, a legend in espionage, in Russian espionage, hasn't he, for the KGB? Indeed. Gordon Lonsdale was jailed um, under the name Gordon Lonsdale in March 1961. And at the time, no one knew who he really was. The first stage was obviously to be certain that the man in jail could not be the Gordon Lonsdale who held a passport in the name of this Canadian citizen. And the breakthrough came there from the discovery through the Royal Canadian Mounted Police talking to the relatives of this child uh, called Gordon Lonsdale, that this little boy had been circumcised when he was born. And when this crucial bit of information came to MI5, they asked the medical staff in Wormwood Scrubs to examine Gordon Lonsdale, the man in jail, and indeed they found out that he was um, not circumcised. So that was definitively proved that the man in jail in Britain was not the man who held this passport. But still the riddle remained, the mystery of who he really was. And this was where you had some amazingly clever detective work of an international nature cooperation between MI5 and the FBI in particular that unmasked this man and his true identity. And this all started with the fact that Gordon Lonsdale was in Wormwood Scrubs and he met a man who was Russian-speaking and told him that his mother lived in a road called Zubovsky Boulevard in Moscow. So that was, first of all, followed up, but couldn't go anywhere because, of course, when they, that's British intelligence and the Americans, looked at who was living in Zubovsky Boulevard, of course, there was no one there with the surname of Lonsdale. But... This then waited a few more weeks for MI5 to, and the chief investigator to cleverly remember that Lonsdale, when he was living in London, had a number of girlfriends and he had been to a film with one of them and she told MI5 that he, Lonsdale, had commented very knowledgeably about San Francisco that featured in the film and said he had been there. And another girlfriend said that she had been told by Lonsdale that Lonsdale had been educated in California. And so at this moment, 
this is in the spring of 1961. MI5 contacted the FBI and said, well, look, can you go back over the ground in California and see if by chance anyone had a recollection of someone of the name of well, a Russian who studied in California at that time? And the FBI struck gold. They went to uh, a school in California and the retired principal remembered, yes, there was this young Russian boy with the name of Konon Trofimovich Molody who did come and study at the school from 1932 to 36. And that really was the breakthrough moment because the FBI contacted the other relatives of Conan Molody who were living there, including his two aunts, his cousin, and they assembled a dossier on Conan Molody. And this culminated in an interview which MI5 and the FBI did in Paris with the aunt of Conor Molody, who absolutely adored this, this lad then and still did clearly when she was interviewed, and she'd become a ballet teacher. And she revealed that was a long, complicated story of how Conor Molody essentially was smuggled out of the USSR by pretending that he was the aunt's son and there was help that was garnered by the mistress of the famous writer Gorky, who knew the head of the then KGB. So it was a very complicated operation that got Molody out of the USSR to study in California, only, of course, for him to decide to go back there in the 1930s and fight for Russia in the Second World War. So that was an amazing story. And Molody has... has his legacy or his reputation has has grown, only grown, hasn't it? And and the Krogers or the Cohens as well. After uh, Molody went back to the Soviet Union, he first of all faced a period of suspicion by the KGB. They're a bit worried in case he had decided to betray them in any way. But he gained their confidence um, and he then became quite a celebrity. Uh, there was a, one of the most famous Russian spy films ever made. Uh, it's called Dead Season, and he helped advise that. Came out in 1968. When he died in 1970, um, he was one of the first um, people who were honoured in the new KGB headquarters with a memorial. And then later on, a postage stamp was issued with his face on it. And he became and is a legend in the Russian intelligence service. He was name-checked by Vladimir Putin only a couple of years ago when there was a ceremony in private to celebrate the achievements of Russian illegals. And a similar thing happened with the uh, couple whose real name was Morris and Lona Cohen, who were working under the cover of Peter and Helen Kroger in Ryslip. Once they were spy-swapped in 1969, they kept a relatively low profile for a few years, but their identity um, was known as Morris and Nona Cohen after a decade or two, and uh, a postage stamp was issued with their faces on as well. And you find in the Russian intelligence history sources that they are lionised and praised, because in Vladimir Putin's Russia, spies are really icons up there with patriotic soldiers, uh, both men and women who fought in the war. They are lionised and praised. And also money was spent on giving Conor Molody a new and very expensive tombstone in 
Moscow. And at the moment, they're finding time and money in Russia for former people working for the intelligence service to produce biographies of some of these characters, from which you can learn some new things. But obviously, as I found out reading the one about Molody that came out only a couple of years ago, you also need to treat them with an element of suspicion, because all of this has an element of propaganda. It is promoting these spies as heroes of contemporary Russia. I wanted to ask about your experiences as a writer and obviously a historian of espionage. What was it like on, on the trail of this um, this case, of this tale? This book, Dead Doubles, was absolutely fascinating to research, starting off with the MI5 investigators, because it was not known before these MI5 files came out that the first key investigator was a very interesting man called David White, and there was nothing about this man whatsoever. So I had to track down his family, and that was quite time-consuming. And the other one was a, a man called Charles Elwell. He played a crucial role, and his family was much easier to track down, and all of them have been very, very cooperative in terms of sharing family archives, memories of their parents, and so on and so forth. But then there was the research abroad. I mean, I was lucky enough to be able to go to Moscow and even spend a short amount of time in the press bureau of the current Russian Foreign Intelligence Service. It's no longer called the KGB, it's called the SVR. And the press bureau, until 10 years ago, never featured on a Moscow map. It does now feature, and it's a beautifully appointed Napoleon period villa near the underground station called Culture Park. And it's all fairly recently been redecorated. And I had a chance to talk to their head of the press bureau. And he took me on a guided tour. And they have, as part of the press bureau, a, a room, which for us would be a rogues gallery, but for them is a hero's gallery. And with a sense of shock, you realise on the wall, you have a photograph of Kim Philby. And also, I was very intrigued to see uh, pictures of the main KGB spies in this ring, Moran, Morris and Lona Cohen uh, and Gordon Lonsdale, otherwise known as Conan Molody. These are very much still actively praised as spies now in Russia. And then, of course, I, I went to America as well and found some very interesting materials about the CIA and the FBI's involvement with this remarkable case. So it's a question of piecing together all these parts of the jigsaw, but then trying to tell this rather complicated story in a way that was hopefully one that was capable of being followed, but also kept the interest of the reader. And in the end, what I did was adopt uh, the idea of one of those wonderful Russian dolls with one doll inside another. The Russians call them matrushka. And that was in effect what happened with my investigation. You started with the MI5 files and you took away the files and you moved deeper and deeper into what really happened. And that's what I've attempted to tell in this book. That was Trevor Barnes. Dead Doubles, the extraordinary worldwide hunt for one of the Cold War's most notorious spy rings, is published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson and is available now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. 
Join us tomorrow for a conversation about donkeys in the Middle Ages. Yeah.